Sapkowski. Hello. Hello. Hi. What are you up to at the moment? I'm touring my Edinburgh show, Silent But Deadly, okay. in the, the city of London and the provinces. Are you from London? Most of my life, yeah. Okay. You mm. started doing comedy stuff in London. Mm, yes. Were you in bands before you did comedy? I was, yeah. Somewhere. What? Like, how seriously? Well, I was much younger. That's what I was going to do before I did comedy. You, for a while it was. Were you going to be a pop star? I, uh, that's not really for me to say, but I don't think so, no. It was quite a long time ago. It was sort of jazz funk. It was like acid jazzy. It was so long ago. That's when it was. But I was in a band with Tom Finley, who then became half of Groove Armada. That was my sixth form college band in Cambridge. Wow, what was it called? And also Andy Spence, who's now in the New York Pony Club. And, New Young uh, Pony Club. New Young yeah. Pony Club. I, I've just heard him say it. Anyway, I'm not <laughs> down with the kids. But anyway, I know they're doing awfully well. What was your band called? That band was called the Thumpasaurus People, which is sort of George Clinton speak. So that's that really dates it, yeah. But it was quite good in this sort of Cambridgey way. <laughs> I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. So you were going to be a funk star? Then. Well, I guess so. But what? I was the geeky one behind the keyboards anyway, so I wasn't I wasn't out front. So what happened then? How did the switch happen? The switch to comedy? Yeah. Well, if you live in London, uh, you can just start doing open spots at, at uh, crappy little pubs. And Why I did it. you decide to do it in the first place? Well, my friend of mine was doing it. A bunch of us were at college together, and we were sort of hanging around doing plays and performing probably Fry and Laurie sketches and student stuff, you know. And then um, a guy called Trevor Locke, who still does uh, comedy, was doing open spots, so I went to see him at some tiny pub and he was good but the other people were not good and I thought oh you, you just need to show up so I started showing up first gig was in a pub called the Purple Turtle where a lot of people in London have their first gigs there's some sage nods around the around the room here it's a sort of biker bar it's not really a biker bar but for some reason there were bikers there that night there's this one guy who's about eight foot tall called Charger with a big beard who's like looks like a hell's angel uh, I don't know if he's a killer maybe he is maybe he isn't you know, I didn't prod him too hard to test him but uh, that was my first gig, and that went well. So then I got confident, and then I had some more gigs, and they didn't go well. Really? But the confidence stayed somehow. It takes ages to learn how to do stand-up, because you can only practice on stage, so that's five minutes at a time. If you're learning a musical instrument, you can sort of practice for however long. But with stand-up, you have to sort of do it. You can try and imagine it and write it, but the business of getting your stage legs just takes ages. What so was your stand-up like at first? It was sort of um, Harry Hillish, I suppose. It was very disjointed. It was like try, always trying to be surprising and like an alien personality. It wasn't I was an other, you know, just say weird, the weirdest thing I could think of to say that had the least connection with the preceding thing and sort of little poems and stuff. And So it was quite not performance arty, but it wasn't, you know, haven't you noticed? Because we had a big agenda to sort of resist what we saw as the prevailing spirit of stand-up at the time, which was kind of observational comedy in the late 90s. Who's which we? Oh, me and my little group of ungrateful 20-something zeros. We thought we were doing something really rad, you know. It's sort of funny now, when you do stand-up for a while, you go through stages of where you sort of look back and see younger people and how you used to be like that and sort of think that talking about monkeys was a social danger. You know, you're going to sort of <laughs> subvert the cultural infrastructure of this country and change everyone's values in some deeply felt way by talking about monkeys. So when did um, you first get to Edinburgh with uh, Well, my first gig was in June of 97, and then... By a year later, I'd done like 150 or 200 gigs. I sort of fell in love with it so fast and then just had a kind of a, a, a moment, you know, about what I was going to do with my life. I was sort of in my mid-20s and drifting around. So I just uh, got on the phone and hustled for gigs. 
and then I won a new act competition in Edinburgh in 98. The BBC... The BBC New Comedy Award, yeah. Well, there was around the time, there was three. There was So You Think You're Funny. That's right. Still going. There was the Daily Telegraph open mic. Correct. And you were finalist in both of those. I was, yeah. And then there was the BBC... Good encyclopedic knowledge there. Absolutely <laughs> right, yeah. And you won it. And I won it, yeah. How was that? Well, it was very nice, yeah. It was good. But I was I've, some of the people in that uh, competition had only done a few gigs, so I was uh, easily the most experienced i was like an old man of comedy compared to some of those people after a year so i was sort of quite ready i was quite serious and sort of had a an aura of momentum you know because i was hitting it anyway so it sort of helps when you win those things because it gives you some publicity and it's a shortcut to getting booked in clubs and stuff marcus brigstock was on the podcast a few weeks ago and oh, yeah. he was saying because he won yeah he won two years before me yeah. yeah and he was saying that when you're a stand-up and you first start yeah. you kind of don't really know how good you are and so to have mm. that award he felt like it was really important oh, for the yeah. confidence to be able absolutely. to go on stage and go, it's all right, it's official, Yeah, good. absolutely. And at every stage, I think that's the case. I mean, I've done the Edinburgh Festival many times, and sort of if you get some little prize or a Perrier nomination or something, it's, it's sort of something you can take to the bank, you know. It's nice, it's nice, yeah. You sort of look at it and it's still there. And so were you doing comedy full-time then at that point after that? Were you making a living from it? Yeah, I, I think I broke it. I took out a sort of big bank loan that got bigger and bigger, a few thousand, you know, and then I think I signed on and was on the phone all the time getting gigs and then listening to Smooth Classics at 7 in my bath at 7pm and then going out ready for war, you know, and then sleeping in in the next morning and then getting up and getting on the phone. I, start, I was sort of busy by the end of a year. I was working most nights. And then after two years, I'd sort of paid that bank thing back and was sort of up and running. So it was quite fast. And then that continued on an upward trend for the first sort of five years. And then you... I sort of forgot why I wanted what I wanted to be doing in Bristol one night and Leeds the next night. And so I got a bit confused for a bit. Then I had kids. And now I'm sort of getting my focus back a bit. Hang on, there's loads in since, there that I want to pick apart. Since you asked, yeah. <laughs> I want to go into more depth sure. in loads of different bits of that. Hang on, back to the beginning of that. You got signed by Avalon. Correct. And then you did this show, The Comedy Zone. That's right. That we've talked about with a lot of different people on this podcast, partly because the heritage, because, you know, Harry Hill did it and Al Murray and Ross yeah. Noble. But also there's been a couple of comedians that I've interviewed who have found it a great learning experience, but have found it really, really tough because of the kind of crowds that you get in, that it is a bit more sort of hen and stagnity than a lot of other Edinburgh shows. Uh, it can be at the weekend. I mean, if you're in the Pleasance Courtyard, which is sort of the alpha zone, it's like you've been there, I'm sure it's the courtyard is like a sort of stock market gossip sort of threshing floor. You know, it's like what's hot. It sort of zooms around the courtyard this way and that way. So shows can do sort of really well there quite quickly. But also I did a show there in 19... I think it was 1998. Yeah, me and my, my little friends, we did a show in the Pleasance Attic, which is a small venue, about 50-something seats. And at the weekend, Al Murray and all the big boys would sell out. And so those people would sort of spill into our show drunk and watch us talking about monkeys and just get really angry. And it would be awful, you know. And then in the middle of the week, we'd be playing to six people. But those shows would be great. With the Comedy Zone, again, it's at the weekend, you kind of, there's some combative nights. But it was nice as well, because it's like a 180-seater and when you're new, when you've been doing comedy for two years, you don't play rooms like that regularly. So it's quite a trip, you know, and then you sort of get used to it. Did but, you enjoy uh, that it stage, then? Did Yeah, you... I had a great time. And in fact, it went well. And I then went back and did an hour the following year. And then that sold out and went well because of the Comedy Zone. So it was quite a, that sort of new act competition, Comedy Zone hour thing was like a little manoeuvre to sort of get up and running at Edinburgh. But in fact, the year that you were doing the Comedy Zone, you also were working with Lee Mack on Lee Mack's Bits with Lee Mack and Catherine Tate. That's right. How did that come about? Well, uh, we were friends from the circuit and um, there's a thing in Edinburgh where you can get somebody who's smaller than you to be in your show. 
for no money so that they can learn something and you can have a bod to be in your show. Now, I did a show like the following year. I had John Oliver, who's now like a massive star in the States, and he wore a womble suit in my show. <laughs> it was kind of my stooge. So that's how that goes, yeah. So Lee Lee was the boss, and me and Catherine would sort of goof off, and Lee would tell us off and kind of stomp off and say he was never... And then he'd come back, and we'd have to stifle our giggles. You know? But it was mainly good. It was mainly fun. And uh, it was a very funny show, of course, because it was written by TV's Lee Mack. You know? And the uh, year after that, mm. you did it again, and it got nominated for the Perry. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It and was that, a good show. That was a good show. And that was the same year that you did your first solo show. I did my first solo show, yeah. Which, which was, also got nominated. It got nominated for Newcomer, yeah. That was a fun show. So I had two, I think I did Lee's show first and then I ran downstairs sweaty and then did my show like five minutes later, which was quite good because I didn't have to clean up after Lee's show. I got special dispensation, so Lee and Catherine had to sweep up. And with your first show, you said already because of the Comedy Zone, it went well, it got the nomination, but also it wasn't just you talking for an hour. No, it was not. I wrote this piece which was about, I recorded myself on cassette. This was the year 2000, so cassettes were, it wasn't hilariously retro, it was just like, oh, cassette. The idea, it was sort of me in the past, literally, because I'd recorded it in July, and it was me in the show, sort of talking to me in the past, and like, trying to explore the reality of that, and like the hindsight, and then we sort of had a falling out, it was like this sort of double act, and then I stomped off stage, and then left the cassette to do stand-up to the audience, while being open about the fact that he couldn't hear them, so it would talk to someone in the audience, call him Barry, and he would just have to be Barry, and it was like really interesting how, if you watch people do, Howard Reed does his animation, and People do sort of stuff that requires a suspension of disbelief. You can sort of see the working. But people almost always go with it, you know, unless the gig has been terrible so far and they're sort of, it's just a bad scene, you know. But it, I'd sort of be off stage preparing this kind of, kind of magic reveal that I'd set up from earlier, you know, so I used that time. But I think once, it happened once in Preview and once in Edinburgh that somebody went and switched off the recording, which was like a proper, it was a good heckle. You know, it's like, okay, fair, you're not accepting this as, as entertainment, you know me leaving a cassette recording to do the show for me, you know. What so did it's you like, do when it that kinda, happened? It was up in the air. I think I was quite flustered. I sort of came out and tried to be witty about it. I can't remember how it was resolved. I think I just sort of said, oh, do you mind if we start again? Because I, I got this thing, um, not going to work. If, um... Yeah, no, that was interesting. The thing that I liked about that, and actually with a lot of your shows, you use props and you, like you mentioned, you get other people involved. Mm. It's just this thing of Edinburgh shows, they have to be an hour long. And an hour is a long time to sit and watch... It Some sure one is. person standing and talking. And especially if you're going up to Edinburgh, a lot of people like me will go for a few days and like bang, 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 try and watch as many shows as you can. Mm. And it gets exhausting. And so to have something like that, or, you know, props, I know, and bring yeah, people in, it breaks just, it up. And it's... It just breaks it up, yeah. I mean, I always, when I put an hour together, I just try and think about variety a bit, either variety of subject matter or variety of tone. Or some people are sort of sniffy about props as if like it's ducking out of structuring not really but everyone you sort of hear this opinion expressed sort of one of the recurring things that people say about people who do have physical objects in their show that it's somehow not pure you know that stand-up should be able to just be kind of talking and that's something i can sort of see that that there is a sort of uh, i don't know what the word is some abstract insert abstract now but there's something about somebody i was just gigging in wales this uh, last couple of days with john richardson he gets on the mic he talks you know he belly aches about life it's very very funny and it's great and then he sort of leaves the stage and there is something that's that's good. I, I can't think of an adjective, but there's something so kind of commanding about that. But uh, what I like to do is I sort of get bored of that, so I like to mix it up a bit. 
And do you, with an Edinburgh show, do you think about that in terms of the hour? Do you think, okay, it's been 25 minutes, nothing's happened, so let's change something here or let's... What, during the show, you mean? No, no, I mean, when you're planning When I'm planning it. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, what I've been doing in recent shows, I've been doing raps, sort of silly comedy raps, and uh, that's quite nice because it's like a prepared thing. It's music, which everyone likes, and it sort of feels like a show, you know, but it's not very high maintenance. Like, I've done a lot of shows where I've had these massive props or big sets with, like, projectors and what have you, and you can't tour the shows, not at my level, you know. So now I've got my iPod and I do raps and like, you know, I take care writing them and people sort of, sometimes they go great, and but even if they go only okay, people go, oh, you you know, you made a show, you know. Can't say different. nothing happened here. You mentioned John Oliver being in the show. You had mm. like, yeah, it was the following year from the one where you got the nomination for Best Newcomer. Mm. And you had tons of people. You had Daniel Kitson and mm-hmm. Howard Reed and Lee Mack and Frank Skinner and Simon Day. That's right. All on film. I hasten to add, they weren't trooping on at my behest when I clicked my fingers. No, we had the, it was this sort of magic door where I had like a set with a door and uh, I had a screen stretched across the opening of the door with a back projection of like these life-size figures onto it. So there'd be a knock, I'd start telling an off-colour joke about Princess Di or something and then uh, there'd be a knock at the door and then I'd open the door and then I'd say, oh, do you want to come in? And they'd say, oh, I'm a bit busy at the moment. So we'd have a sort of chat on the doorstep, as it were, with uh, me leaving uh, pauses in the recording for me to answer them live. And then I'd sort of do stand-up in between those bits. And it was very interesting when it didn't work as much as when it did work because, I mean, there was a sort of real wrench, like you'd sort of get ahead of steam up with the audience doing stand-up in the normal way and then there'd be this sort of scripted thing and they'd go, oh, you're lying to us now. You know, this isn't... Because with stand-up, there's, they know you've written it. There's a sort of double belief that you... Well, you suspend your disbelief that it's spontaneous, that someone is just making conversation with you and has just sort of shambled onto the stage. But, you know, it's more dense and hopefully witty than uh, than that would typically be so you you understand that but that was kind of weird and but, so what, uh, but... yeah well you just sort of get this energy build up and then it would sort of get wasted because they think oh we now we're watching telly you know effectively or we're watching a play we've got a different role you know we're not being addressed as the second yeah first person second person and then they get demoted to third person because the second person is this film person yeah but the ideas were sort of interesting and like frank skinner did this bit i got some of the <laughs> the avalon pr girls to dress in school uniforms and sort of fawn over him which he was very amenable to what a nice guy to give his time for that and uh, he was sort of talking about being a millionaire so it was sort of about being famous and then Simon Day did this brilliant we devised it together this bit about being all past it and falling on the pregnant sister of Paul Whitehouse and damaging the child and so they don't talk anymore and this sort of really dark stuff in his Billy Bleach wig and then kind of taking it off and having a kind of breakdown it was really good it was very funny and I successfully thought. got nominated for it the did Perrier. yeah despite having lots of sort of turgid nights I've sort of changed the way I've written Edinburgh shows since I've become a dad and I'm sort of half tired out of my mind, you know, for the last five years. I've written shows to be tiredness proof, so they're full of punchlines. So my shows are very jokey shows now, and I just make sure there's a lot of stuff that works in text. Previously, I did not used to do that. So those shows that were sort of critically successful and were sort of got award nominations and stuff, I had the biggest number of hard nights performing those shows because they were just too... At that stage, they were too ambitious for me to be able to perform. I could not sell those shows with that level of performance experience on a regular basis. So we'd have these nights that were just like sort of wading through treacle. But then when it was flying, it was really great. So I got lucky when all those judges came along. It was always on the good nights. What stand-up is hard to do then if you're tired? Well, I used to write stand-up that I called tonal stand-up, where there there wasn't really a concept. It was just like a little flavour of something, and it was just sort of an odd... There was just something odd about it. It was kind of normal, but a bit awry and uh it was kind of a subtle tickle and when there was a sort of silliness in the room 
I mean, when you make a rapport with an audience, like they pay and you have brought the material, and so that is the economic relationship. But really, the funniness of a gig kind of emerges in a spiral by a mysterious alchemical process between the performer and the audience. And no one understands this process, no one. And uh, when the room is silly, the room is silly. And you can be very subtle and just the smallest little adjustments and talking in a slightly bland way, but nothing like a character, you know, nothing very strong. And it can really be very funny. And some nights that's just nothing. There's just nothing. There's no joke. There's nothing, you know. I was very interested in how things that on paper were just not funny could be made funny in performance. And I was right enough of the time to sort of get a career out of it. But then when I was wrong, we just have these horrible nights, you know. And also with kids. Yeah. How does that work in terms of the lifestyle? Because, you know, stand-up is all late nights and sleeping in late, and yeah. kids is not. Kids is not. No, it's not. Well, it didn't, it didn't work for a while, and I kind of mainly stopped doing stand-up for a little while. I got a part in a sitcom called Hyperdrive, which ran for a couple of series. Which had Nick Frost and which Kevin it, Eldon in it. That's right, yeah. And, and Miranda Hart, who's now doing her uh, very good sitcom. Yes. So that timing was really good, because I just had a kid and didn't want to be on the road all the time. So that was good. And then uh, it's getting easier now because our little one is nearly three. So I can go away for a couple of days and I'm not screwing anyone over. How did you find Hyperdrive? It was all right. It was I, I liked it. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> I mean, it's a TV production is a lot of sitting around, having less status than the leads and more status than the extras. and kind of mooching around, holding a coffee, trying to find people with less status than you to lord it over. It was, it was fun. I want to ask about a telly thing that you did long mm. before that, and it was a pilot. And... Mm. It didn't get commissioned, but the reason I want to ask about it is because it sounds awesome. <laughs> it was Head Farm. Head Farm. It was, was awesome. It should have been commissioned. So it, it was produced by Stuart Lee. Yeah, directed by Stuart Lee, yeah. Directed by Stuart Lee, yeah. who, if people don't know, as well as being a stand-up, directed and wrote Jerry Springer at the Opera. Mm. And it had Julian Barrett and Noel Fielding from The Mighty Boosh. It had Richard... Richard Ayoade and Richard uh, Matt Iowady. Holness from yeah. Garth Marenghi. From Garth Marenghi and Richard Ayoade from and, uh, IT. I don't know if Slow was in that. I'm not sure she was. And uh, Johnny Vegas. Johnny Vegas, yeah. That was like the year before he went monster big. So what was it? It was a studio show with bits on location. And it was a... I don't know what you would call it. It wasn't a sketch show. I mean, it was supposed to be... Everyone got really excited about it. This was an absolute... These were all the sort of coming names. And this was going to be the new kind of Saturday Night Live wave launched on the telly and then i don't know some commissioner just made some decision or i don't know i've heard sort of that people recently have said that it stands out really well and it was like it should have been made and so on do you I, know if I, the tape's still around anyway yeah the tape is around i don't know if it's even on youtube or something or someone will have it avalon will have it they made it yeah it was good it was a good show but there's lots of good shows that don't get on the telly for some reason to do with the corridors of commissioners, and we know nothing about that. That was around the time of the Perrier nomination, and so you'd had the two from the year before. Did that all make a big difference? What, those nominations? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it made me a sort of able to be a touring um, comedian doing my Edinburgh shows, which is what I like to do. I'm not really a club comic. Sometimes I am, and sometimes I like to be. But um, mainly uh, for me is the hour of blank space to turn into my little my thing because some club comedy is rubbish i mean some of it is just awful <laughs> and you have to go and sort of be on a bill with and follow people that you just think are terrible and are introduced by a compare who sort of i mean i think some audiences are also mainly i like people and mainly i like doing comedy but there is some nights where you just think oh this is not a job for a grown-up this is just why am i there's no dignity to this at all i've driven on the motorway to another town eating ginsters to perform for people who are sort of not interested you know what is the point but um, to do theatres and art centres, like I'm doing this tour in the spring, and that is my favourite way to make my living. So going to people who bought a ticket, they know or have some idea, or their friend knows who you are, or however they've come to be there, but they're sort of more or less 
pro <laughs> facing forward, not eating a nacho. And uh, the shows go well, typically. And it's great. It's really good. So you've done some pretty glamorous things. You've been in films. Yeah, I've been around some pretty rich, successful people, Marsha. <laughs> I've been near the A-list. Was the first film you did... Oh, no, it was a short film, right? Was this the first one you did, Big Girl, Little Girl? Oh, yeah, that was a really nice little short film that it won some awards at film festivals and stuff. Yeah, I was pleased with that. And then I was I played... Uh, the biggest talking point of my massive film career is uh, I played Jesus in The Da Vinci Code, which was quite... A, it was a short experience. I was basically an extra, but like everyone gets excited about it. How did it happen? How did it come Well, out? I went to a casting and I had long hair and, you know, looked like uh, Robert Powell. And they said, oh, yeah, you'll do. We need someone who looks like Jesus. You look like Jesus. In the casting, did you have to do any... Did you have to audition? I think I just had to face the camera and say my name or something. And I, I think I sort of... They left the camera on and I pulled this sort of weird, intense face I don't know why I did it but some sort of twatty moment came on me I thought well I've come this way I, I should do some performance anyway they obviously liked it since they gave me the part so mm -hmm. tell me about it that's well, exciting we, well we I did the day at Shepperton and that ended up in the film where I just had to I'm in the film <laughs> about 20 minutes in where Paul Bettany who's this mad monk is having a he's delirious and Alfred Molina who's the corrupt archbishop, leans over him, and in Paul Bettany's delirium, he sort of there's a crucifix on the wall, and the bishop changes into me, and he gets confused and thinks that he's nicer than he is and starts killing for him. So that's where I'm in the film. And then the other scene was in Malta. They flew me out to Malta to stay at the Malta Hilton, and there was this shot with like 250 extras all in kind of period costume, and some actors that I sort of recognized just standing there playing the priests or whatever, and it was a wedding scene of Jesus and uh, Mary Magdalene, which they then cut from the film because I think they just got scared. I've no idea actually why, but uh, I know they got death threats from Christians who, with a loose interpretation of the fifth commandment. Yeah, so that got cut. But that must have cost a lot to produce. What was the wedding scene like? Well, it was just a big crane shot. I don't know if you've seen the film. It's a terrible film. It's please don't waste your time just, just to complete your research on this interview. But it was a nice-looking film based on the one of the worst books ever written. And um, all the actors in it just look sort of a bit pained. But there it is. Who played Mary But it was going to be, who played Mary Magdalene? Oh, yeah, a young actress called uh, Charlotte Graham. But her name's Kimmy Graham now, but she's left acting. And she actually works in comedy now, by complete oh, really? coincidence. Yeah, I met her in Edinburgh again. Have you bonded over the fact you got married? Well, you know, it's this hello, Mr. Jesus. Hello, Mrs. Jesus. The laughs never stop, you know. Yeah, I think she was in it a bit more than me. She was, yeah, they cut that wedding scene. That would have been the big controversial moment. And I think they phoned me up like the first... AD phoned me up when I was in my kitchen and asked me not to sort of mention this scene. I guess they'd already decided to cut it then, but they were sort of quite concerned. that Because I think like there was so much hoo-ha about the book and the film from Christian peoples. And uh, I think when the film came out, it completely wrong-footed them by being so bad. It was like so powerless as a piece of anti-Christian propaganda that it instantly any conflict sort of evaporated and it just dropped to page 10 and then completely out of the news, you know, where previously they'd all been squaring up for a big uh, Armageddon. But maybe it's good. Maybe if there had been like a, you know, a big Jesus scene, then you would have got all the crazy death threats. For, well, that, so I was, I was sort of ambivalent about it. For all, I was ambivalent about it for a while. I kind of thought, oh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, this is like, because everyone was curious about it being a Hollywood film. And so it was like a good name drop thing for me professionally. But then also at the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe I should just keep storm about this in case someone thinks so I'm saying. So you didn't saying. get any... No, no problem so far. But okay. after this goes out, who can say <laughs> how long memories are? You know, I, please go and see the film. It's probably, it functions as a pro-Christian piece of uh, propaganda. It's so bad. I've seen it. 
it's pretty terrible, but you know, in a kind yeah. of it's sometimes enjoyable to watch terrible films. Obviously, your bit was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've also seen the other big film that you did, which I loved. Is um, it's all gone Pete Tom. That is a proper good film. That is a surprising little offbeat gem of a movie. I think. Yeah, I just did like a morning in the studio, sort of impro improvising with the director. And um, they used quite a lot of it, I was pleased to see. It's like a mockumentary about a DJ in Ibiza who's played by Paul Kay, who's famous for doing Dennis Penis and yeah. for being Tanya Frank's boyfriend in Pulling as well. Um, and he's very good in it. Mm. And also my buddy Mike Wilmot is in it. He's an excellent stand-up and he plays the agent in that. And, and, so what was your... and I was like a biographer who'd written a, a biography about this sort of fictional DJ and had to sort of speak earnestly about where he might be in the world, and like a sort of Mark Comody sort of voice. But yeah, the film is really good. I was really surprised. Because since I thought Dennis Penis was great, we all did, didn't we? And uh, then Paul Kay was in these sort of sitcoms and doing nothing much. And then this film again was like really good and he was really good. So it was, I was pleased because I was a fan. Yeah. So it was around that time that you did Hyperdrive. How do you feel about that acting? Because you have done other serious acting bits. You were in a Radio 4 play, weren't you? Which... Yeah, I haven't done much of it. I mean, uh, if a director is patient with me, he can get a good performance out of me. I mean, in Hyperdrive, there, there were just a couple of scenes. There was one scene that was actually a dramatic scene where I was talking about how my dad died and wrote a computer program to replace him. And uh, it was like an emotional scene and I sort of got my teeth into it. I quite liked doing it and having a bit of getting a bit you know this is sparta about the uh, performance but generally it's quite weird like stand-ups uh, it's just you on stage so you're sort of the center of things and you carry the can if it goes badly but you it's all you if it goes well and um when you're acting in an ensemble i'm not really used to sort of having a medium-sized role in things just sort of sitting there tapping a pretend space keyboard with people going set the atomic thunderbusters to code red or something being i i captain or something so that's a bit weird yeah, I'd like to do more. Cast me, listeners. So you did Hyperdrive, and you were doing these films in the point when you were saying that you'd had kids and you were kind of taking a step back a bit from stand-up. Sure. And what was it that made you get back into doing stand-up again? Well, I kind of got quite over stand-up a bit, over touring, and also over... I couldn't quite remember. It's, it's really... You have to have desire to do stand-up because it's quite an unnatural thing to do. You need momentum. You need to sort of be in the habit of doing it. You need, you've got to do several gigs a week you know on average because otherwise you kind of forget why <laughs> there's a sort of impetus that carries you onto the stage and makes you want to make a connection with an audience and um it works in feedback loops like i started gigging less because it was not practical because the babies and i sort of found myself drifting away from it and i just couldn't i didn't want it i just didn't want to do it so it was quite good to take a break although it was quite confusing at the time and um, my agency sent me to lots of acting castings because i was in hyperdrive so there was some sort of momentum to be capitalized on there and uh, I really didn't enjoy that I thought oh I could do acting that's so much easier than doing stand-up you just sort of turn up and do your bit but it's very passive you know you just go to loads of castings and some person who might be a dick is judging you and then you leave and you just think well what just happened there you know that's not very really nice I mean I've spoken to friends of mine who are quite established actors who've been on proper terrestrial stuff and they go to like 40 castings in a row without getting part and then they get a part and that's normal, you know, and that's like the gig for them. The casting is a gig and they sort of learn the lines and they try and perform it. And I could never take that seriously. If you're not going to give me a job, well, why would I bother to sort of learn these lines, which I don't think much of anyway, you know. So it's quite, I couldn't overcome my snootiness about the writing. Like I used to, I think I used to think that most actors are bad on telly and that that's why I don't like to watch stuff that's on the telly, like Hollyoaks and stuff. I can't, it's, I can't watch that stuff <laughs> but really it's not the actors it's the writers I think most writing is bad and I, I've sort of come to the view that what makes a good actor is the ability to make clunky dialogue seem natural like if the dialogue is good then any fool can just say it and it will speak for itself 
so I sort of think yeah most writing is not very good and especially like going up for comedies like I've got quite strong opinions about what I think is funny and what's not so a lot of it is not up to snuff with me so going back to how you got back into stand-up what was it that yeah I thought being an actor would be easier and actually it turned out to be sort of quite it wasn't for me it sort of clarified that that I would rather have the inconvenience and responsibility of my own stand-up career rather than sort of wait to be called by some self-styled you know impresario or whatever so you got so, back into doing so I got shows. back into doing shows and then I went up to Edinburgh again I had like three years off Edinburgh and I'd done seven Edinburgh's in a row and would sort of sell out my medium-sized you know largest rooms it's quite established and then I went away for three years and I kind of came back and went hey it's me and they're like sorry who are you so there was that was last year and then this year I went again and it sort of it started to kind of pick up again so I feel like I'm kind of back in the game this year and doing a sort of tour of theatres and art centres in uh, in the spring well another thing that happened last year when you when you came back to doing it is that you kind of developed a bit of a viral internet presence with the sandwich wrap yeah the sandwich wrap that's my baby so um, tell me about the sandwich wrap. Well, the sandwich wrap, we developed with a website and we had all these meetings about some sort of poxy three grand that they were going to give to us to kind of make something. And then suddenly their budgets were slashed. They only had 600 quid. Where did it come from in the first place? It came from my live show. Yeah, it was my 2008 show. Sort of that was the bit. In every show, there's a bit that people like the most. And that sandwich wrap, I did like three wraps in that show. And that was the bit that sort of people uh, remarked on the most. And so I kind of would end up doing club sets and closing with that. And that was like my thing that I used to do yeah so then you spoke to these people about doing yeah so we we sort of developed a screenplay and then they kind of made it impossible to work with them at the last minute and um so I was just about to do Edinburgh so I just thought well I've spent it cost 1500 pounds to make this rap which was a financial commitment from me but I was spending all that money on posters and stuff anyway so I thought well why not actually make something that's like a piece of comedy and then you can direct people to it because everyone's online now and it's the smartest thing I ever did because it's a really fun video because we had no money so everyone was really cool and came down and sort of waited around all day and did it for nothing and so it was it was just really good and we just had to hire like a couple of locations and buy some costume and stuff so it sort of looks really homemade which is what it is but it's got a really nice vibe to it yeah I just feel pleased with it and it's on about 21,000 hits now which is not sort of world beating but it's very pleasing to me and uh, I'm sure it has sort of paid for itself in, in ticket sales you know because people like it yeah. it looks homemade but equally it's very it kind of changes constantly so it's very engaging all the way through well that's that's what we thought yeah we, we couldn't sort of make it look lush but we'll sort of make it dynamic and yeah and you have some other comedians in it as well yeah there's a whole load of comedians Carl Donnelly and uh, Tiernan Dweeb and Albion Gray and Lucy Porter plays nice. my girlfriend in it and like some people came down who were dancers so they sort of choreographed little bits and it was really fun I'd like to make more this year as well the other the sort of notable thing that happened was you won this Dave award yeah that they do every out of year left field for the best joke of the fringe that's right I did I had a joke which is hedgehogs why can't they just share the hedge and that is a joke which I was just a little one-liner that I wrote to sort of slip in my show it, you know I sort of I would have it as a little laughy line as in case I had a sticky moment I could stick that line in there and then we'd be back on track you know? so it wasn't like a big thing and then uh, it won the award and then it went nuts all over the internet it got like 54,000 because it's it fits on a tweet you know it's like this short line and uh Dave knew what they were doing they sort of had this competition ready to go and it, they just sort of had all the sub sub editors in the world like ready so it was people were saying oh i was in dubai and uh this guy told me this joke and it's your joke you know or it was in the pakistan daily mail and it was on reuters and like so it was just this little story that had like a diagram of a list of 10 jokes and then there was a winner so it was like a little story so it was just this sort of page two story everywhere it's been quite useful for all that it's sort of absurd 
it's uh, helped me uh, publicise what I've actually got to publicise, which is my touring show, which is you know a proper piece of work which I want people to come to. Did you even know that you were in the running for it? No, I'd never heard of it. No. They pick a bunch of jokes. They pick like twenty-seven jokes and then show them to you know three thousand people. Yeah, they did an online poll. Yeah, but it's weird. Like what comes off. I mean, we were talking about kind of what works live earlier and me having spent so many years exploring what can work live. And then this is an example of something that works on the page because that's how people were polled. They weren't in the show. So that's that, different jokes, different media. But there's this whole, I got asked to write an article about plagiarism because people are sort of addressing the issue of the problem of live comedy. That Now we're communicating, this is sort of the flip side of YouTube and Twitter is that people can just sort of see a joke and then tweet it and then everyone in the world has heard it. And it's not really a problem for me because I only do a few one-liners. When I think of a nice one-liner, that goes in, no problem. But mainly I do longer pieces, which you can't really copy. But for for comedians who do one-liners like Gary Delaney and Tim Vine and Milton Jones, it's a proper vulnerable spot because people can just put their material out there. And then uh, they come to the show and go, yep, heard it, heard it, heard it. Have you had (laughs) anyone nick jokes off you? Uh, I've seen a couple of lines end up on telly, but that'll just happen. I don't particularly mind, but nothing current, you know, so I don't make a big thing of that. It's still on telly. Okay. Yeah. Well, every every once in a while, someone who has to produce a lot of material for telly. I'm sort of almost almost sympathetic. <laughs> I haven't had any particular conflicts in that. No, no complaints. So you've got this tour coming up. You've got a bunch of dates as well between now and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll replug the website again at the end, which is danantipolsky.com. Yes, please. Before then... I've got a confession, Dan. Name it, Marsha. <laughs> so we first met, uh, it was about a year or two ago, you came yeah, in when I was I doing a Sunday afternoon show on XFM. Yeah. And then, you know, I've sort of seen you around since then. Yeah. Bumping. That wasn't the first time we met. It wasn't? No. Because I thought there was something familiar about you, <laughs> but I thought I, I must fancy you or something. About six years ago, um, look, I can't even look you in the eye. <laughs> no, go on. But oh, this really ago. squares the circle for me, because I was looking at you thinking, <laughs> I know this person. But uh, I probably awful. don't. Okay, about six years yeah. ago, I had just moved to London. Um, I was horribly unemployed in that kind of pacing the corridors and weeping all day away. Mm. Um, but I took a trip up to the Edinburgh Festival, and it was the only time that I've ever been to the Edinburgh Festival where I haven't been affiliated with a radio station, or basically, like, I haven't had to make sure I'm constantly behaving myself because I don't want to misrepresent this thing. Yeah. And I had been drinking for about two days solid okay and at the end of the second day what year was this this was so it would have been i started expand five and a half years ago so at least six years ago but um i can feel myself rushing <laughs> so right at the end of the second day i'm excited to, to hear what we've been up to <laughs> i went to a show and it was uh you know a, a compilation show sort of three acts and a compare mm. and it was on at about midnight and I had sat next to a friend who is just very gobby and quite funny, but very gobby. Okay. And basically, you were headlining, and I just, I pretty much just heckled you throughout Did you? your entire set, but not in a, like, I wasn't funny. I would just put my hand up, and you'd go, What? And I'd go, See, <laughs> see how you've got your jump around your waist? And you'd be like, Yes. And I'd say, When girls put their jumpers around their waist, it's because they think they've got a big bum and they're trying to hide it, but I don't think you've got one. And you'd be like, 
I just didn't have anywhere else to put my <laughs> Yeah. And then I did at one point. <laughs> well, you must have made an impression on me because I, I definitely stored you away in some <laughs> synaptic recess well, of my brain. I did at one point then get the entire room to sing happy birthday to you when you were trying to birthday? stop me. I think you said so. it was. I have this suspicion that I well, found My birthday's that in August, the 22nd of August, okay. so it is in Edinburgh. Well, you so said it was your birthday and I was like, I think we should all sing happy birthday to you. And you'd said no and kept trying to stop me. And then I managed to get the whole room to sing happy birthday to oh, you. And then hilarious. I think afterwards I went up and went, oh, that was really great. And you were very nice to me. But then ever since I've met you, ever since then, and I've seen you this around, you probably you. thought, you know, that nice girl, Marsha from XFM. And actually... You're my arch nemesis. <laughs> all this time you. I've been harboring a snake. <laughs> In my affections. I, I've never, ever done that before or since, oh, and I will never. That's good to know. But I'm really sorry. That's all right. <laughs> How did the gig go? It was good. Despite, it was really... your, despite your best no, attempts you know, to derail it and ruin my life. <laughs> it was a really good gig. And, oh, and good. you were headlining. And I, I think on some level knew that you were good at dealing with idiots like me. Oh, that's and, good. Which is why... So it was a sort of trust thing. Yeah, but it was generally... a sort of backhanded way <laughs> to offer me the chance to demonstrate my... Ability. I mean, you're you're good with hecklers. I've seen at other points where I've seen you and haven't heckled. You are, and is that something that you? Sometimes had to... I am, and sometimes not. Really? Know. Yeah. Sometimes I'm great though, but sometimes not so much. But you know what? As well, <laughs> you see, you see what I'm saying there. Sometimes no. good, sometimes not good. I think <laughs> but, we covered that. But some... if you're not across this now, Marsha, we're going to have to draw a line <laughs> under it. I can't think how to paraphrase. But it actually, anymore. I remember seeing you at late in live, and it was really early on. It was one of the first, mm-hmm. certainly one of the first times I'd seen you at Edinburgh, and it mm-hmm. was in the days when Late in Live was a true bear pit. Yeah. And I'd seen so many people, I think it was the same year I saw Dara O'Brien get completely like heckled so much that he just went, oh, There was oh, nothing okay, to be I'll taken leave. for granted at that Late in Live, no, absolutely not. But I remember being really impressed by you because you knew and you got heckled, but you didn't just snake off the stage. You stood there and went, come on <laughs> Yeah. Or, you know, well, I had, like some, I had some great showdowns at Late in Live. That's some of my fondest memories, actually, at the Fringe, because in some ways I was so unsuited to it, going on and doing my <laughs> sort of wordy, nerdy comedy. And uh, some nights it would just not go over at all. And then it would just become a stunt to see, like, I'm just going to stay here and see what happens. And then sometimes it would sort of get really funny. And sometimes, yeah, I used to call it digging through to Australia, that if you can sort of wait it out and sort of fight your way through the dramatic and then the tragic, you can sort of dig your way through to the comic. Now, I had a gig in South Wales last night in Narbuth where the gig, I just sort of went on with a funny rhythm and it just didn't, it wasn't igniting with the audience. They were really nice. It was like this big room full of people. And then it just got, at the end, it was just like I wasn't leaving and it just got really, it just got funnier and funnier and people were like chipping in. And, and those are magic moments, memorable, you know. And Late in Live used to sometimes be like that. I used to have a running score, me versus the gig. And I'd do like three a year, sort of over the years. And I think one year I'd win two, the other year I'd I'd win one. That was good, good times. So you you wanted to mention a gig you're doing tonight in case oh, you've absolutely. listened to this as soon as it's gone on there. I yeah, think. it's at a place called Theatre Delicatessen and it's at 295 Regent Street and it's at 8pm tonight. And if you'd like to come and see my Edinburgh show, what i just done, then um, come and see it while it's hot off the press. And I still remember all the words. And otherwise, you've got mm-hmm. a bunch. Of, you've got like a few dates between now and Christmas, and then the tour is happening. Sort of o- over the spring, yeah, more like uh, February, March, April, but all, all around the country, and we're sort of still adding dates. And um, yeah, so I'm getting out and about. Scotland, um, Wales, everywhere. There's no country that I'm not playing in Britain, if you exclude Northern Ireland. <laughs> and all of the dates are up on your website, which is yes, they are. www that stands for World Wide Web dot, which is just a dot. I don't know what else to tell you. DanEntopolsky dot com. And that's my name, and it's .com. And if you misspell it, Google will just help you out. Dan, thanks so much for coming Absolute pleasure, as always, and thanks for your heckle. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.